Hey, Podcast Brunch Club. A quick message before we begin. I just want to thank our organizational partner, Listen Notes, the best podcast search engine. If you're an individual or an organization and you want to support the amazing listener community, think about becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash podcast brunch club. So thank you so much, Rose, for joining me on the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. Yeah. So the first question that I have, and I always ask all of our creators, is just to tell me a little bit more about the project and how you came about doing it. Sure. So 2015, I am and was then a freelance science reporter. And I had an editor and a friend, Annalie Newitz, who um, is the co-founder of io9, which was a website as a part of the Gawker Network. And what io9 did was mix science fiction and science journalism to kind of give you this really cool and interesting blend of some reviews of science fiction shows or movies, but then also really cool stories about science or stories about sort of cutting edge science. And I've been a huge science fiction fan and sort of nerd my whole life. And I always (laughs) thought that I would maybe like write science fiction on the side as like a hobby. Um, But I was talking to Annalie and she knew that I did podcasts and knew that I had just finished working on a podcast and I was kind of looking for something new. And she said, hey, you know, we don't have a podcast for io9, you know, or for Gizmodo. Like what would you, which is another part of the Gawker network, Gizmodo and io9 were kind of like sister sites. And she was like, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah. And so I pitched her three different ideas. I can't actually remember what the other two were. But Flash Forward (laughs) was kind of the one that we both were immediately more excited about because it did have that mixture of fiction and journalism. So that's kind of how it started. It's funny, you know, sometimes when I have new listeners get in touch and they say, oh, I'm really excited I found the show. I'm starting at the beginning. And I'm like, oh, no, because... Older episodes, I I listen and I'm like, oh, I sound so different. I sound way less comfortable. They're much shorter. You know, the first season, almost all the episodes were under 20 minutes. They had maybe one or two sources, voices in them. And now, you know, they're almost an hour long and there's four or five or six voices and I'm much more comfortable. I'm much better at producing them. And so yeah. I'm always like, no, no, work backwards, work backwards. Don't start at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> because it is, you know, like anything, right? Anything you look at that yeah. you started doing years ago, you always look at and you're like, oh, God, what was I doing? You know, nothing ever looks as good, you know, in hindsight. I know. But I feel like also if you wait until you're totally ready and oh, you, totally. Think, you know, like it's you're, you're going to wait forever, you know, you just yes, got to do exactly. it and then you pivot and you get more comfortable. And clearly you did that. So that's awesome. Totally. No, I'm really glad I did it. And, you know, whenever people ask me for advice and I if I do encounter people who are in that boat where they're like, well, it's not perfect, you know, like, I don't know, you'll never put it out. Um, I give a piece of advice that um, I stole blatantly from Brittany Luce, who is one of the co-hosts of the Nod podcast at Gimlet, which is an amazing show. I love that show. And she her advice always is you're not Beyonce. Like no one is waiting with bated breath for your album to drop. Like you can put something out and then like if it's not great, you can just keep going. Like you just keep making it better and better. Like you're not someone who is going to be, you know, scrutinized for every tiny little thing that you do, right? Most of us are not. I mean, who? no one is Beyonce, right? Like she's, you know, in her own class. And it's it's actually a luxury. Yes, exactly. Like it would be really stressful to be Beyonce and have to put out perfect all the time. Yeah, Yeah. I can't even imagine. We have the luxury of being 
able to make mistakes in public without getting, you know, our heads bitten off. So yeah, might as well use that to your advantage. Experiment, you know? Yeah. And definitely just like keep making them, right? Like just keep doing it. They always, everything gets better, right? Like as you get better, as you keep doing it, you will, you will get better. (laughs) Right. And you have to, like, I always, I don't know, I I feel like you have to fail in order to succeed. And I feel like failure is like the four letter word, right? Like nobody wants to fail. It's so bad, but I can't think of a single successful person who exists that probably didn't fail a billion times and just like dust themselves off and do it again or, you know, just modify. You have to. You can't expect the first try of anything to ever be perfect. So but back to your podcast and flash forward. We love it. So do you have a favorite episode? Um, it's hard. I, I have a couple of favorites. I, I love every episode like it is my child. Um, and I think sure. you kind of have to because if you don't, then you you sort of if you don't feel like you really like own and love every episode, I think, especially yeah. as someone who makes the show by myself, you know, in my closet, like, you know, you really mm-hmm. have to just like love it. Um, it's yeah. not, you know, super glamorous podcasting. Um, I think some people think that we're like, you know, rolling in Casper money or something like mat, you know, mattress mm-hmm. brand gold coins or something, and that's not the case. But I, I do have some that I really like. One of my favorites, they're usually the weird ones, and some I know some mm-hmm. people in the audience, some listeners like hate these, but I love them. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Um, they're usually the ones that are like one of my favorites is the um, algorithmic super religion, which actually kind of touches on what this episode that we're going to talk about is this AI thing. And it's about a future in which sort of this tech mogul has created a religion around AI and around machine learning. And what I did actually was I worked with this amazing um, computer scientist named Janelle Shane, who does AI weirdness, which is this great blog where she just does weird machine learning experiments. You've probably seen them online. They're like, training machine learning to name beer names or like, you know, paint colors or whatever. So I worked with her and I actually I put together a huge corpus of religious texts, about three million words from okay. sort of across the spectrum of religions. So I tried to kind of touch on as as much of a diversity of religions as I could, um, just so that it wasn't mm-hmm. totally biased towards like the Western religious canon. Mm-hmm. And then I, I gave that to her and she basically had her machine learning algorithms spit out a holy text oh that gosh. was written by uh, AI, essentially, a machine learning algorithm. And then I had a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, her mom is a priest. And I had okay. her read it in the like priest voice, you know, where it was like she actually delivered <laughs> it as a sermon, which I was really oh nervous gosh. about asking her to do because I don't I don't I wasn't sure if it would be like sacrilegious, you know, like I didn't right. want, you know, I, I you know, and we're very yeah, close. You don't and her mom anybody. and I are very close. Sure. Right. So, but, so I call Linda and I was like, you can say no, like if this is totally offensive, like please know that I don't mean to be. And she was like, no, this is so cool. Like I'm really into it. She was <laughs> she was great. So she That's she awesome. read it in like, you know, the voice of like, you know, a, a clergy person. And then I had sort of religious experts come on and talk about basically their interpretations of the text. Like how does a Muslim wow. scholar, you know, interpret it? Or how does, you know, a, a Catholic scholar interpret it? You know, and so, you know, how does a, a woman who's um, raised in a Native American tradition interpret, you know, this text? And then kind of talk about what makes a religion. You know, could you make a religion this way? Yeah. Like, what does it? What what is required of a religious thing? And and you know, we talked a lot about how it's not just about the text, right? It's about you know going to church. It's about having a community. It's about you know physical ritual too. It can't just be this like document, right? There has to be more to it. Um, 
But so it was really fun. And that that's one of my favorites. It was it's super weird, but I love that kind of thing where it sort of takes yeah. something that we think about as technical and then kind of turns it and asks cultural questions about it, right? Where it's not really necessarily about how do you build a machine learning algorithm to do this thing, but more about how do you, could you build a religion in this way and what does building a religion even mean in the context of technology? So that's kind of this kind of thing. So that's one episode that I, I is very near and dear to my heart. I will definitely put that in the show notes. That sounds really interesting. I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to that one too. So this this next question comes from one of our community members. And he wanted to know how you do the intros for the podcast and all those like robotic voices. Yeah. So the intro future scenes are all voiced by listeners. Um, so oh, cool. there, it, if you are a patron on Patreon for Flash Forward at a certain level, you basically get an email every couple of weeks where I say like, hey, I need, you know, four or five voices to do to play various characters and people can kind of claim them that way. Every so often I will ask friends to do them. Mm-hmm. If I know I really want a certain voice, you know, I, or if I if somebody, yeah. you know, is a friend who's asked and said, hey, I really want I want to be on, you know, I want to do it. So that's kind of how they where they come from. The robot voices um, come from a variety of places. Some of them are just the like Mac built in text to speech okay. um, function on yeah. your computer. Every so often I will actually use Alexa. Alexa has a sort of uh, repeat after me function. So if you say Alexa, Simon says, and then you says some, say something, it will repeat it back to you which is okay. a fun trick. And I sometimes record that. So I will just read it, the script, and it will read it back to me in the Alexa voice. So that's where the, <laughs> the robot voices come from. It is sort of funny, you know, when I make these future scenes, um, making a radio drama about the future is much harder than making a radio drama about the past because in the future, things don't make sounds, right? Like in the past, when you dialed a phone, you had a rotary phone, right? And it made that like noise, right? Now, if I want to convey to you as a listener that someone is dialing a phone that there's no sound right there's no sound for me to play of like dialing right and so when you think about like in the future a lot of the stuff that I'm playing in these future scenarios they're not you're not gonna have that like you're are you gonna have voicemail in the future probably not will there be like a weird phone tree where you call and it's like press four for blah blah like probably not right like are those things that exist in the future probably not but like I'm still using those tropes because it sort of helps me explain and show what's going to happen so it is sort of a funny game that I'm playing with these future intros is that they're like somewhat like retro future I guess in the way that like they're pretending like we're gonna have like Every so often I'll have one where it's like somebody like tuning a radio between frequencies, which like no one even people don't do that now. Like, you know, and like no right. one in like 2028 is going to be doing that. Like, that's ridiculous. But like, right. it's sort of a, I need to be able to like play stuff for you. And so I do sometimes think about whether the future of radio drama is in peril, right? By the fact that like we all of our stuff is just so quiet now. You know, you don't have yeah. the sounds around us, which is probably good for our physical ears, right? That we're not just being deafened yeah, right. all the time by all the sound. But from my perspective, selfishly, as a radio producer, it makes it harder. Yeah, I never thought about it. I mean, because and like, how do you decide what year you're going to is just like you arbitrarily pick it in the future. And you know, or is yeah, it, it it's somewhat arbitrary and somewhat calculated, you know, I mean, there's a general like, okay, if it's something that could happen tomorrow, I'll pick a close year. If it's something that is date. way okay. far out there, I'll pick a But I don't spend a ton of time fretting over that because that right. way madness lies, right? You can't predict these right. things. So I try not to spend right. too much time. Every so often, um, I will like 
I'll try to make a joke. Like it'll be a year from some book or it'll be a year that like is referenced in Back to the Future or something like that. But, you know, most of the time it's just sort of in the vicinity when I think maybe this could happen and like right. we, you know, yeah. give or take 50 years or something like that. And you script it all. So do yeah. you kind of do all of the research first and then script it? Is that how the sort of process goes or do you script it first? I'm, I'm assuming yeah. you probably do the research first, right? So the process is sort of um, sort of iterative. So I do a lot of research at the top where I know the future I want to do and then I do a ton of research and then I interview people. And then after I interview people, I do a lot more research and I'm in between interviews too. So like if somebody mentions something that I haven't heard of, I'll then go read about that. Or, mm-hmm, you know, and I try mm-hmm. to have the guests be pretty different. So that way they're kind of each bringing a different perspective. And then once the research is and the interviews are done, then I script it. Um, and obviously in scripting, I, I do a lot of research too, where I'll be scripting and I'll be like, oh, wait, I don't actually know that. Or I'm not sure about that. Or I need to go look and check mm. this. And then, you know, there's editing and in editing, I'll, I'm, I'm always doing research, right? In editing, if I realize I need to know a piece of information or if I need a transition or if I need to actually address this one thing that I didn't think I was going to need to address, you know, I, I then go back and do more research. So it's a very research heavy process at pretty much every step of the way. Um, but scripting right. comes after all the interviews are done. I do usually script the top, the fictional bits at the top after I've done all the interviews because that way, A, I can reference something, you know, that I know I'm going to include later in the show. Right. But also they will sometimes, you know, guests will be like, oh, you could do this or, oh, you could make that. And like, it's very, it's fun to think about it with them and be like, what do you think it would sound like if, you know, this happened? And, And they often have really fun and cool ideas too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that'd be fun. I could see that being really fun. So I want to kind of dive a little deeper into the episode that we featured this month, which, as you know, was Bot for Teacher. And um, so I wanted to just pull out some of the conversation starter questions that our chapters around the world will be discussing over the course of the month. And one of those questions is, what is your perspective on the role of AI in education? And do you see AI as augmenting current teaching or replacing it? Yeah, I mean, I think that AI can be really useful. And AI is such a broad, you know, idea. It could it could mean a variety of things. Um, you know, AI, right now we don't have general AI, which is to say that we don't have the sort of science fiction version of AI where it's uh, an artificial intelligence that knows everything and can do everything right. and can kind of interact with humans, right? We have much more specific things. That said, I think AI can absolutely have a place in education. There are certain things that it can help teachers not have to do and sort of free up their time to be able to do things that they're good at, right? So humans are very good at a certain set of things and AI is good at a different set of things generally. And if you can make sure that those two things are complementing one another, that can be great. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the challenges and one of the, the worrying things I see in looking at the ways in which AI and education are interfacing right now is that A, there is this conversation about replacement, which doesn't really make any sense, right? And and I don't think that even if we did have a a general AI, we would want that. Um, I mean, I think probably everybody has a teacher who like really impacted them. And that isn't to say that AI can't impact people, but it's probably not in in the way that a teacher impacted you. Um, I always tell this story that I was a really, really bad student. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, I just didn't, 
I was just very restless, like couldn't really pay attention, um, kind of a brat, like really just like didn't, I, I, you know, very difficult to follow rules. You know, I'm a freelancer for a reason. I like to do whatever I want, you know, like, <laughs> um, I'm, right, you know, yeah. I, and I'm, I was just really, I, I was not well suited for school. I was, I am still a very, very bad test taker. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that I, I had teachers who saw me and they were like, oh, like, you're not dumb. You're just kind of a jerk, you know? And like, we're able to be like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you know, saw that like I was struggling and I was struggling not because I wasn't smart enough, but because right. like I had these, I had other problems with like the structure of school. Mm-hmm. And I am still forever grateful for those teachers who didn't just say like, oh God, like whatever, you know? Right. And she, and when I look at right. some of the ways that um, AI is being used to kind of classify students and sort students, that removes that option for a lot of kids. Um, and, and you know, I was also very privileged to go to schools at which the teacher to student ratio was pretty like good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm also like a middle class white lady. So like, there are there are other reasons that I was able to kind of make it through school without you know being pulled out and called a nuisance or or you know put into detention in ways that other students might have been. Mm-hmm. And AI kind of because we know very clearly from all of the research and all of the real world experiments that have been done that AI only ever either reflects or amplifies existing human bias. Mm-hmm. That's only going to be worse if we rely on AI exclusively. Mm-hmm. So I think that the conversations around the ways in which AI can be useful in education, to me, from what I've been seeing, have been somewhat stressful because they don't ask the question of, you know, what can, how can we use this to make teachers' lives easier mm-hmm. instead of how can we use this to kind of quantify students? Or like replace teachers, yeah. Right. So there's this, yeah. you know, like to to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You see this in AI development all the time, right? In order for AI to work, you need data, right? In order for machine learning to work, you need data. And so what that means is that you have to reduce everything to data in order for this to work. And data is very useful in many cases, but quantitative data is not the end-all be-all when it comes to teaching, right? And I think any teacher could tell you that, right? (laughs) That you can't quantify everything about a student as much as you might want to. So the ways that AI is being implemented are in ways that rely on this quantification, right? Because you need to be able to plug numbers Mm -hmm. into the system in order for it to learn, in order for it to make decisions and do things and give you something back. And so, for example, I'll give you a specific example because I feel like I've been very vague. There is a new uh, set of systems that are being used in classrooms in both France and China right now and are being tested in classrooms in the United States, which use machine learning and artificial intelligence to, or purportedly do this. I'm skeptical that this is a thing that they can do in the way that they claim. Purportedly tell teachers when a student is engaged or not using facial Hmm. recognition. So the idea being that you have a camera that's watching students' faces and can tell when a student is engaged versus when a student is not engaged. Um, That's nonsense. (laughs) So I think any (laughs) teacher can probably tell you that that's not really going to work. It might work for some students. I could be laying in bed and listening to somebody and paying attention. And it would look like to an AI interface like I was sleeping. You know, right, right, exactly, and and this is amplified when you talk about students with disabilities, right, who might be right. autistic or who might stem or who might just not sort of perform engagement in the way that this system 
expect. Expecting you to, right. And that's also something, I mean, anyone who's taught, teachers are very good at knowing when a student is engaged and when they aren't, right? Like, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you know your students, you know, at least, you know, from when I've taught, you know your students, you get to know them pretty well. And it's pretty easy, I would say, for a teacher to look around the room and be like, okay, those four people are paying attention and those four people are not just from your experience with the students. Now, obviously, if you have a gigantic classroom, that becomes more difficult. But again, this is a thing where instead of addressing the problem of, say, teacher to student ratio, where you would be able to see every student's individual face and know them well enough to know, we are throwing AI at the problem because that seems Mm -hmm. to be a more tractable solution than sort of the bigger picture questions of how do we make education systems better. So that's kind of what I'm seeing when I see AI in education is that I feel like the questions that they're asking and the applications that they are pushing aren't really the ones that are going to make students' experiences in schools better or teachers' experiences in schools better. It brings up sort of like the next sort of sub-question to that is, is there like an ideal or optimal role for AI in education globally that you can see? Like how, paint me a picture of what that would look like. What would the best use of AI be in a school? Yeah, I mean, the challenge is, right, that like, no one, no, nothing is going to be a one size fits all solution globally. And I feel like that's the the thing that, you know, tech people want, right? They want something that's scalable. That's the term they mm-hmm. love to use. And that makes sense to a point where, you know, not everything can be bespoke just sort of from a practical level. That mm-hmm. said, the context for education in different places is really different. The students are going to be really different, even within the United States, right? The students Mm -hmm. that are going to school in a private school on the Upper West Side are going to be different than the students who still don't have clean drinking water at public schools in Flint, right? You know, these are not, they're not coming in with the same expectations. They're not coming in with the same experiences. They're not coming in with the same needs. So the question of what AI can do globally is really hard because there isn't one thing. Um, I think that, you know, what I would like to see more of is more teachers involved in the development of these sorts of things. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of tech people who maybe are professors at prestigious universities, but right. aren't teachers in classrooms in middle school, right? And those are very right. different settings, right? You have very different students, sure. you have very different needs. Well, you also have very different training, right? Like exactly. professors in higher ed have never learned how to teach. Like they yes. just are experts in their field and therefore are like, it is assumed that they can teach, which is right. a huge leap in my mind. But yes. they don't oh, even, they've never learned curriculum. They've never learned pedagogy. Like they don't know the sort of nuts and bolts of how people learn. They right. just are an expert in whatever their field is. And then they're somehow given the job of training young people, which is just mind boggling to me. But totally. Right. And I think anyone yeah. who's, been at a university has had that experience, right? Where like clearly the professor does not even want to be there, like doesn't just wants to do their research, like was not has not had any training, you know, and and I think that even when you look at a lot of these AI startups are coming out of universities and when you ask them like how they evaluate success, right? What what make how do you know when the system is working? And if the answer is that the students get better test scores, right, I think that's sort of indicative of a broader problem right because that doesn't necessarily indicate learning (laughs) um at least not in all students right in some students yes Mm -hmm. and many students no speaking from experience as someone who failed out of many classes (laughs) but learned a lot you know um right i think that there is this question of um 
you know, do the people who are developing these things think about that? And do they think about, too, you know, the ethical implications of AI and of of the systems that they're building? There's um there's a really great researcher named uh, Suresh Venkata Subramanian, who I'm forgetting where he works now, but he um, he does a lot of work on um, machine learning and ethics, and he's a professor. And he has spent the last year kind of trying to better understand pedagogy and and evaluation and all that stuff because he sort of was like, well, I don't know that I can necessarily even talk about this stuff without knowing more about how teaching works. Because again, he was never trained to teach. He right. was trained to program mm-hmm. computers. Like and he's very good mm-hmm. at that, you know? But he's right. and he knows enough to know that he doesn't know, you know, the the rest mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that that's one of the big challenges you see. And and this is something you see in tech all over, right? This idea that they don't know what they don't know. And that, you know, expertise is not necessarily valued in the same way that it might be in other other fields. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, to, to not be totally dark the entire time, there are some really great applications of AI, I think, in education globally. I mean, so there's people who are working on a program that helps students um, work through college applications, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and also sort of um, the logistical blah blah with intake for a new school. So you get into college, but then you know you have to fill out like 90,000 forms mm-hmm. and you have to do all this stuff and it's all very confusing. And especially if you are a first-generation college student, like you don't necessarily know what to expect. Maybe you don't have somebody who is helping you through it. There are some schools now that are experimenting with AI systems that kind of help remind kids what they need to be doing um, and say like, hey, you know, you need to fill your FAFSA form out. You need to do this. You need to do that. Because a lot of these schools were finding that, you know, their acceptance rates were really different from the number of kids who are coming in that freshman year class because they were losing a chunk of students because they didn't know what they needed to be doing. And it's not obvious. It's very confusing. You know, if you don't have someone who's helping you and keeping track of that stuff, and if you have a lot of other stuff going on in your life, like you might miss a deadline for that. You might not understand what the FAFSA form is. You might not fill the FAFSA form out correctly so you don't get the money that you deserve and so you can't go to the college. You know, there's all these things that could be happening. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that it's really hard to scale, to use that word, on an individual level where it's a human on human, right? It's really hard for one human to keep track of 10,000 kids and have they all filled their forms out. It's super easy for an AI to figure that out. You know, right? That is the kind of thing that an AI would be really good at and sort of following up and saying, hey, I noticed you haven't done this. Hey, like, do you have any questions about this? Let me work through it. Answer the most common questions that are probably the same for most kids. And then if it rises to the level of not knowing the answer, then you know, push them to a human. Um, And there's been, um, I forget the name of the college that's doing this, but they've had some really great success with it where they're retaining more of those students who got into the college, but didn't, who might have otherwise not actually showed up that first day of class because they don't know how to sign up Mm -hmm. for classes. They don't know how to log into their thing. Like they've never, you know, some of them might not have a computer at home, you know, it's like figuring that kind of stuff out. Uh, That I think is the place where AI can be really great. I mean, every teacher, right? Like the first day of class, you're like, hey, read the syllabus, right? And no one does. And then you get 9,000 questions about the syllabus. So there was an experiment um, at Georgia Tech, I believe it was, where they used AI to answer questions in the student forum that were all 
accessible on the syllabus. So it, if there was a question that was asked that the AI registered as something that they could answer because they know they have the syllabus, they would just answer it. And that frees up time for TAs and professors to actually do the stuff that they're good at, which is explaining the complicated stuff to students. So that's the kind of right. thing that I think we could see AI be doing in the, in the classroom in a really cool way. And that could like make teachers more effective. And I think, I mean, for me also, like I think, so I studied international education and I'm, I'm passionate about education. And I, I think testing, I think it's a necessary evil in a lot of ways, but I think that the results of tests are used for the wrong thing. I think it's like used to say like, oh, this student is stupid. Instead, it should be used to say, no, the system is not working for this student. Like it's a way to analyze whether or not the way that it's being taught for this student is the right way to teach it. Like it doesn't mean that the student doesn't like can't understand it. It just means that this particular method isn't appropriate for this particular student. And instead it's just like used as this like flat thing that just categorizes students. But like there's a lot of data coming out of these testing, this testing that could be like, you you know ai could take this like massive amount of data like th- for an, an individual student and then kind of maybe direct a teacher into saying well it seems like potentially this student might be better with this type of teaching style or learning style you know cuz students have different learning yeah. styles like some yeah. students need to physically feel things or move their arms or bodies to learn it and some need to read it some need to see it visually you know what I mean like there's just different ways for people to learn and to shove 35 kids in a class just because they all happen to live in the same area and happen to be the same age and then expect them to all learn the same exact way is kind of ridiculous but AI could use the sort of tests that are being used as a way to evaluate the system rather than evaluate the student. Right. So the question is like, how do we how do we make the handoff between the AI and the teacher the most effective? Right. Like what is what is it that a student might and this is sort of one of the ideas behind Dreambox, which is one of the apps that's in the episode Jesse Willie Wilson talks about in the episode. That idea is she calls it adaptive learning, but the idea is that, you know, as the student does stuff in this app, it learns what the student is good at. And then kind of can right. tailor lessons to the f- in the future around that. And I think that exactly. that's great. Yeah. I think then the question is, how do we make sure that that information is handed off to the teacher too, right? Because if it only right. lives inside the app and then the kid goes to the classroom and that information has mm-hmm. not been conveyed to the teacher or it has been, but, you know, as a teacher, you might have kids with seven different learning styles in one classroom and you have 45 minutes, you know, there's only so much you can do. Um, right. So, yeah. you know, how how do you how do you use that information in the best way? And then what, what yeah. you know, again, to flip that back, like what is the information that teachers really want? want to know. I think one thing that was really interesting, um, I was working on a project about education and, and technology and data. And as part of it, I sort of informally asked a bunch of friends who are teachers, you know, what data would be the most useful to you about a student that you currently don't get? Like, what would you, like, if you could know anything about your students, mm-hmm. like, what would it be? And it wasn't stuff that was quantifiable. It was mostly stuff like, what is going on in their home life? Like when they come to class and they fall asleep, is that because they're taking care of their two siblings and grandma because, you know, or is it because they were out partying? Like, you know, because you, you Mm want to be compassionate and kind and understanding and figure out how to, I mean, teachers want kids to learn. Like, how do you figure that out? And without knowing, you know, the assumption that kids come in and are a blank slate and like, you know, are completely this like empty vessel to fill is obviously not Mm-hmm. true. Um, right. And mo- almost every teacher I said what or I talked to 
said something like, you know, I just wish I could know without violating their privacy or, you know, anything like that. I wish I could know kind of like what they have going on in their lives. And like that might help explain their behavior in the classroom. Like a kid acts out, you know, where is that coming from? Like what's happening, you know, and and how can I help? And that's not something that AI can deal with unless you want to talk about you know, AI therapy, which is a whole other side of AI that people are using now where it's like online chat bots where people feel more comfortable talking to a non-human. And this happens, actually, this is really effective with the military, right? Veterans are notoriously Mm. closed off, right? Emotionally, Um, they sort of have to be in order to Mm. successfully, you know, do some of the things they have to do. Um, You know, PTSD often means that they wind up being very closed off, very protective, Um, They don't want to show weakness, right? That's another thing that the military drills into you. And so there have been some really interesting and and successful experiments using AI chatbots with veterans who wouldn't open up to a human therapist, but might be willing to talk to a machine, even though they they know that eventually probably a human is going to read this. But the sort of not having to be face-to-face, not having to open up to a human who's giving you facial expressions back, but instead to open up to a sort more neutral seeming, I think I want to be clear about that, a more neutral seeming AI can be successful. And, you know, I don't know how much that's been tested on kids. I think there's a lot more or there's a lot of different ethical questions about kids and therapy and all that stuff. But I mean, that could be another thing that might be useful. It might be a useful use for AI is to kind of offer a place for kids to talk that isn't the guidance counselor, but that can be useful for both them and for teachers. You know, it's interesting because I work, as you know, I work at Northwestern University in in the School of Medicine. And we have a lot, there's a lot of kind of chatter about precision and personalized medicine. And mm-hmm. I kind of almost see this as like analogous, right? You know, like these, like it used to be that you you just, you know, if you had this disease, you died, you know, like you gave them this prescription and that was it. You didn't take into account any of their genetics or any, you know, and partially it's because that information was not available before, but now with technology, it is becoming available and it makes it easier to create sort of like this personalized medicine um, an intervention for a person based on who they are rather than just putting them into a category. And I kind of almost see that similarly to students. Like, I don't think it's as easy to crack because it's much, it's like softer, right? It's not like genes that you could just read and know if they're predisposed to a certain disease. But like, if there was a way to kind of personalize education rather than seeing it as like this mass education effort, but now that we are at the point we're at and we have the technology available, maybe that is the next step. Maybe it is personalized education rather than like mass education, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is this is something that um, ed tech people talk about a lot, right? What is this idea? I mean, and you, you see this a little bit in conversations around the flipped classroom, right? That like you go home, you, you end up doing your homework in school, basically in the traditional homework in school. And then at home you do the like learning part. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of often coincides with questions or proposals around these kinds of AI teachers that sort of help kids through this these topics at home. Um, and right, the idea being that, you know, if instead of having to go to a school, go into a room, have one teacher deliver the same lesson to 40 students, you could instead have each student have their own personal teacher that's sort of walking them through the lessons personally with whatever their learning style is best, um, that that can be really useful. And I think that to a point that certainly can be really useful. Um, 
I mean, there there's also a question of, you know, who has access to that kind of thing. There's a question of parents who work and suddenly their kids don't have to go to school. Mm. Like, what do they do? <laughs> you know, yeah, like there's right, right. like school yeah. serves many functions. School feeds kids. Right. Like there's a lot of kids who wouldn't have food at home, right. but go to school and get food, you know? So like there's school provides a lot of yeah. other functions that I think are really important, including like interacting with peers, right? Like learning exactly. interpersonal right. skills, right. like all that stuff. Right. So there is a point at which, you know, you can go into the scary dystopian future where only rich kids get human contact in school and then poor mm-hmm. kids are just given these like, you know, USB drives that like, you know, good luck kid or here's a hole in the wall right. with a video screen in it or whatever it is. And I think that that is, you know, I think the questions that I that tech people often um, and, and this comes back to sort of like to a hammer, everything is a nail, the unquantifiable benefits of school Things like interpersonal connections and friendships and, you know, yeah. all that stuff like that is not something that an AI is addressing. And those aren't outcomes that an AI system is measuring. Um, and so, you know, obviously learning is very important, but learning isn't the only thing that happens in school. And and learning the, you know, curriculum is not the only kind right. of learning that happens at school. For sure. So I think that's the other piece of this that I, I wonder about, which is when we talk about AI and education, you know, who is making those lessons? Who is deciding what's important mm. to learn, right? That's a huge battle in the U.S. It's a huge battle almost anywhere where there's public school about what is sort of allowed to be taught in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And if you wind up, you know, if you wind up in a world where every kid has individualized, personalized lessons that are tailored to not just their learning style, but also their knowledge base, their background, their family, all that mm-hmm. stuff, Um Mm-hmm. And if you allow parents input into that curriculum, uh, you could wind up in a world in which we have created the already sort of the bubbles that already exist, the filter bubbles people talk about that have sort of many people think have resulted in sort of current political climate in the United States to right. use a euphemism. Yeah. Um, right. Are we replicating that in our curriculum for kids, right? Are certain kids getting lessons about black history and other kids are not getting lessons about black history, right? Like who Mm. is getting what lesson? And I think that's a really big question that we need to tackle when we talk about personalized education because it's great in many Mm. ways. It's really important to personalize lessons and get kids learning. But when we think about what we're teaching and who decides what we're teaching and whether the AI Mm you know, it starts making decisions on its own about which lessons kids receive the best. That isn't necessarily the lessons they need to be learning. Yeah. And that I think is the other big piece of this that people don't talk about that much, um, which is like, in some ways, to a point, school needs to expose kids to certain really important lessons about history, such such that we do not repeat it as we are currently. Yeah. So like, (laughs) even though we have learned it, right? Right. I mean, but like, in many places, like, you know, in many schools, you know, they don't learn, kids don't learn about the Civil War in the way that other kids learn about the Civil War, yeah. right? The Civil War, is it a, you know, not to get like political here, but like, is it a war of Northern aggression or is it a war over slavery, right? And there are mm-hmm. adults today who believe that the Civil War was not about slavery because that's what they were taught in school. And if you have an AI and a machine learning system and machine learning systems work because humans train them and humans train them by mm-hmm. responding to them. And so if we have the system where kids are training it by responding positively to certain things and negatively to other things, such that it shows them more mm-hmm. of the things they respond positively to, like that that's a that can be a really dark road to go down. And that's also not yeah. the point of education. Yeah. And I guess when I think about personalized education, I don't think necessarily about personalized lesson plans. I think more about like personalized 
uh, what's the word, like methods of instruction. Right, um, right. Like getting the point across to a kid in a different way, like, but the same point to the kids, you know what I mean? Like, right, right. I, I wouldn't think we would give different lessons to different kids, but they would all learn the same things, but possibly in a different way. Yeah, totally. That right. And sense. I think that like, that's like, yeah. That's definitely a piece. That's definitely the things that have been proposed, you know, and and yeah, I think that that's like a, an interesting challenge, too, because it means you have to preload that information mm-hmm. in. Right. So like the, just sort of like functionally, the machine is like, OK, you know, Rose learns best by listening to things and not by reading things right. or seeing things. Right. So we need to have yeah. an audio thing ready for her for yeah. this thing. Um, and And so, you know, whereas a teacher on the fly can kind of think that up. Right. And and right. the best teachers yeah. are really good at that. Right. They're you know, they're those teachers who just like can off the top of their head, draw the picture or or give the analogy or do whatever it is. Um, and yeah. that's like a, an amazing skill that I don't have that I am always in awe of when I see it. Um, and you need a system to be able to do that. Um, and so you need to kind yeah. of preload all of those. I mean, it's kind of like becomes a video game, right? Where you like you need to have preloaded all the various choices that you can make and kind of have all those cutscenes ready and like ready to play for someone. Yeah, I'm like literally li- like imagining one of your dystopian futures as being like a bunch of kids seated at like a norm in a normal classroom with like helmets on and like oh, fu- like functional <laughs> MRI, yeah. you know, like uh, let's measure their brain waves as they're learning these things so we could tailor yeah. their education to them. And, yes. you know, they're all kind of like catatonic and yeah no I mean it's very easy to get like pretty dark I think in general with these sorts of things I and and again like I do think there are some really great opportunities but those opportunities are going to come from inviting teachers into the process a lot more than they currently are well I know you're really busy so I want to ask you one last question so I always try to ask all of the guests the same question. And just because, you know, Podcast Brunch Club, we're always we're a group of avid podcast listeners, and we always <laughs> want to talk about what we're listening to lately. So yeah. what are you listening to lately? And do you have any recommendations for us? Yeah. So I'm going to do two. Is that allowed? Can I say two? Yes. Um, yeah. One is a series on 99% Invisible called Articles of Interest, and it's hosted by Avery Truffleman. It's all it's just five episodes, and it's all about the clothes you wear or the clothes people yes. wear. Maybe not you personally. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, right. But the clothes we I wear. I might wear some of those clothes, but yeah. Yeah. And so it's five episodes. It talks about things like denim and punk yeah. style and pockets. Like why do women's clothes not have pockets? Mm. And and sort of the history of that and how that came about and it, you know, it, it's great. Hawaiian shirts. I love that one. So it's really great. I mean, most people who are in a podcast brunch club have probably heard of 99% Invisible. So this is not like a deep cut or anything like that. But I think that series is so good and so well told. And um, I just love it. So um, that's one. The other one is another science podcast hosted by a really rad lady. Um, it's called Ologies. And it is, Allie Ward hosts it, and the premise is very simple. It's every episode is a different ologist, so like a paleontologist or, you know, uh, like an oncologist or whatever. And so each episode is an interview with one of those people. And it's really funny. Allie is a really funny interviewer, and um, within the interview, she'll like, you know, she'll pause and she'll kind of have these asides where it's, you know, she's she's recorded herself talking about something where she'll either clarify something or tell you a little bit more or just make a joke. And it's very fun and funny. And I learn a ton. and It's always really fun to listen to. Um, and it comes out every week. And I really I recommend it. I will say it is not it, there is cursing in it. So it's not for kids. Um, but okay. if you are if you like adult like science, funny comedy stuff, <laughs> um, it's a really good 
kind of mixture of super informative and also genuinely funny. And I am always like going to recommend podcasts about science by women. So Allie's great. Um, So yeah, Ologies is the other one I'd recommend. So is there an episode of that one that you would recommend? Ooh, which one would I recommend? She just put up one that's about crow funerals, which is incredible. Um, (laughs) Crows have, yeah, yeah. Corvid oh, you actually mean crows as in the bird, and you're talking about funerals. As in the bird. So what is the ology? It's corvid thanatology, apparently, is what it's called. Okay. I, I They're all really good. I think all of the episodes are really fun. That one's a really good one. The, in, the interview or the expert that she interviews on that one is really, really funny and like just a really good storyteller. She just finds really great scientists, often women, which is great. And it's just like a really fun, informative show. I feel like I speed through them really quickly. So I, I recommend that one. They also, awesome. She also has a, a Facebook group for listeners that is like very funny and active. Okay, awesome. I will put both of those in the show notes. And just before we wrap, so where can listeners connect with you and find out more about your podcast? Yeah, so flashforwardpod.com is kind of the home base for everything. We are at, I say we as if there's anyone else who works on the show. It's just me. Um, <laughs> we sounds like much more formal. Like, oh, yes, we, my team and I, of me and my dog. Um, it's uh, Flash Forward Pod on Twitter, also on Facebook. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash flashforwardpod. If people like the show want to give like a dollar or whatever, um, got some good stuff the two dollar a month and up people get a really sweet newsletter that i spend a lot of time on which i am very proud of (laughs) and is always really fun um those are the main places yeah to reach us awesome well thank you so much rose this was awesome thank you for having me this is really fun hey everyone this is steve I'm the leader of the Minneapolis chapter of the Podcast Brunch Club, and I'm here with some info about the people who help make this show. First, we'd really like you to rate and review the PBC Podcast on your podcast player of choice. It's really helpful. The music you heard this month was from a couple of my favorite artists. First is a remix of Moe's Shop's song, Love Taste, by Blair. And the second is the song Sober, by Superb Liars. The music you heard during our ad was Mizale Gonna. Podcast Brunch Club is organized by the world-famous Adela. Adela's co-host on the podcast is Sarah De Silva, the leader of the Houston chapter of PBC and founder of Audible Feast. Lastly, audio editing is done by me, Steven Zampanti. You can connect with me on my website, conceptualpodcasting.com. Thanks, and happy listening. <laughs>